Nisambula Vinaka, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Ngo Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up first. The first time we experienced this now happening in our island. So a lot of people are panicking now. Nauru is facing its first community outbreak of COVID-19. Members of the public are seeing his actions as indecisiveness to some extent. The competency of the PNG Electoral Commissioner is called into question as the July polls approach. Come the 1st of July, we will be uh, open to international travel. And Pacific Island countries discuss air travel options in a post-COVID world. Nauru is facing its first community outbreak of COVID-19. 337 people tested positive for the virus as of Sunday the 19th of June. RNZ Pacific journalist Lydia Lewis has been following this story and joins me now. Lydia, how did the island go from no community cases to a large outbreak? So up until now, the virus hadn't managed to seep through the border. The director of the Government Information Office, Joanna Olson, told me late last night that just 13 cases had been detected at the border from incoming travellers on the 31st of March. So that is cases that were not inside the community remaining at the border. They were all contained, they were in quarantine facilities and they've since recovered. But fast track to Thursday, the 16th of June, COVID-19 has now been detected in the community. The following day, three cases recorded. I spoke with a resident in Boa district who would like to remain anonymous. When I was working on Saturday night, my friends called me. They said that, well, there's a COVID-19 spreading around the community now. And I was like, what? Oh, man. So I started to drive home and tell my friends. And the next day, we only know, we, we only find out that it's only three cases. So, so Lydia, how, how are community members like this man feeling, especially those in areas where COVID-positive people are isolating, such as Ewa, Batisi, Aiwo, Boy, Menen and Iju? He told me some are feeling shocked, scared, but also many are feeling quite prepared. This man has had three jabs, like many people, and Nauru's vaccination rate is really high, sitting at 98%. But people are still cautious. The first time we experienced this now happening in our island. So um, it's good to be home safe, not going around washing and sanitizing. So a lot of people are panicking now. The government has mobilised welfare and financial support. Payments will be paid to government and SOE employees, pensioners and disability recipients. In a statement, the government stresses the spread of this virus is dependent on the movement of people. So in other words, if people walk, the virus walks. If people make contact, the virus makes contact. Really the same messaging that we've seen across the Pacific and in many other countries when they are faced with such large outbreaks. In the statement, the government also said that it is absolutely vital that if anyone leaves home, they mask up, and also they're implementing a one and a half metre social distancing rule. And they've, they've made special mention in their statement to car washes. Why have car washes in particular been closed? 
The resident I spoke with explained that car wash services on Nauru are done by people, so they're not drive-through mechanical services that are contactless per se. And President Lionel Aingimea says the overcrowding and queuing, that nature of those hands-on car washing stations, are just another opportunity for the virus to spread, so they've been closed. Have we got any indication of how many people have been tested so far? More than 2,000 people have been tested so far and testing was ramped up straight away as soon as those cases were detected. There, there are a lot of cases. How are the quarantine facilities coping? They've actually almost reached full capacity already. Mr Aingimea says the cases are either in quarantine facilities at home or at the negative pressure acute care unit. There are 261 cases, including children and their carers, in those quarantine facilities. And the beds are filling up really fast, and that means more cases isolating at home. So residents are urged to stay home to stop the spread of the virus. And before we leave this story, the president of Nauru, Lionel Angemir, has given an address via social media. This is what he had to say, speaking in both Nauru and English. Out of those tested, Three hundred and thirty-seven been tested positive. Stay home, stay masked, be sanitized, keep the distance. Very important, Karja. Wa safety, Nigeria me. Wami safety, Nigeria. At that moment, I'm responsible for each other's safety. Ja, mask moment, safe and narrow. Ja, I'm keep our distance, safe and narrow. Ja, I'm here, I'm sanitized here with data, safe and narrow. My mission, we need to effort. It is national. Together. I'm going to keep each other safe and keep with that safe. God bless Ekemi. God bless Nauru. As the Papua New Guinea election gets closer, questions are being raised about the performance of the Electoral Commissioner, Simon Sinai. The PNG poll begins on the 2nd of July and is set to run for a three-week period through to the 22nd of July. Our PNG correspondent Scott Wyde spoke to Don Wiseman about the latest developments and began by detailing Mr Simon's ambivalence over the rules restricting convicted people from standing for the election. A lot of people, members of the public, are seeing his actions as indecisiveness to some extent. Take, for example, the issue of a former convict being allowed to run for office. So that's taken a while since the Supreme Court decision was made. And uh, I guess people expected the electoral commissioner to come out and say, this is what we're going to do and set kind of like a timeline for implementation of that court decision. But it it took a few weeks before the electoral commission and, and Within that time, a lot of prompting happened from the media and members of the public on on social media and outside of social media trying to prompt the Electoral Commissioner to at least say something or make a public statement. That resulted in in a statement that came out later saying that former convicts could not run for office, but then it passed on the responsibility to the candidates themselves to declare if they had been convicted. The latest statement that came out was that the Electoral Commission had tasked those people who 
were convicted previously to come out and, uh, I guess, declare what they were going to do. So that has also drawn the ire of the public on this particular issue. Do we know whether there are any former convicts who are standing in next month's election? Well, for example, Paul Tienston, the former member for Pormio, a lot of people are questioning why he's actually running for office. And th- there's a pardon from the Governor General's office saying that uh, he's been, he has received full pardon and he's eligible to run. So the subtle messages that, that are coming out from the Governor General's office, the, uh, the, the governor, uh, government as a whole, is also throwing into question the integrity of the electoral commission itself. And they've named three candidates, including the former governor for Medang, uh, James Yali, who was previously uh, in prison, as one of the candidates that should come out and declare his interest, that also in quotation marks. And that's also drawn a lot of anger from members of the public who say that, you know, why can't the electoral commission just make a decision, go out and uh, identify those people who are former convicts or who've been convicted and just, you know, bring out a checklist and tick off their names, basically. So that's that's the thrust, that's the narrative coming from the public. Simon Sinai, the electoral commissioner, he's new in the job. Is he just still finding his feet or is he not up to it? He's actually been in the electoral commission for for a while. Like he's a, he's been a senior officer, but as electoral commissioner, uh, I think he's he appears to be struggling a bit because the members of the Transparency International who were just watching the trends. One of them stated that whenever the electoral commissioner says something, it would help if that decision that he makes and most of the statements he makes is off the cuff. Uh, it would help if they were accompanied by a proper media statement and, you know, the media and the public are able to hold him to account. And from my own experiences as well, uh, he's he speaks off the cuff and it's difficult for all that he said to be contained in a statement that the public and uh, authorities are able to hold him to account. So that's the situation that exists. All right. And this is sort of related to some of the work that you've been doing. You've been teaching people about misinformation in the media and in the whatever. To what extent is misinformation or disinformation a significant issue in this election? Uh, You you know, I haven't seen this level of disinformation in the last elections that I've I've covered. Like, I've, I've seen it in maybe 2017 and the previous one before that. But this one here, like this, this election is more coordinated. You know, there's a conscious decision put into disinformation. And by various parties, I, I don't mean political parties. I mean various elements within uh, the political circle and within the public space. This information's being broadcast as being transmitted through social media. Yes, primarily through social media. Like, uh, for example, I, I guess various definitions of it, you know. So I was posting, you know, the definitions of uh, misinformation disinformation and malinformation, just so that people would understand uh, the differences. Uh, so, for example, we had an, an, an instance of disinformation, which I actually used in, in the training that I was running, that the regional member for Bougainville, Peter Tsiamalili, had been shot and killed. So that was all untrue. And within a few hours of that information coming out, Peter Tsiamalili had recorded himself on video saying, I haven't been shot and that is fake. And then another instance of a photo of an NCD candidate and uh, Sylvia Pascoe and um, Gary Jufa in in a very intimate photograph of them. And they they had a relationship before. So this photo is coming out just 
on the eve of polling being spread by people with intentions to destroy their integrity and their, their chances of political office again. So it's, it's things like this that are being spread deliberately and targeting various people. And yesterday we got information again from uh, one of our WhatsApp groups saying that because of that photograph, the party leader, Sir Peter Ipatas, the party leader for Sylvia Pascoe, had withdrawn her candidacy. And that was again untrue. So it's it's a coordinated effort by various individuals and not just one. It's so many targeting various different people. And, and that's the level of disinformation, misinformation that we're seeing on social media. Is any of it coming from the candidates themselves? It, well, you'd imagine some of it would be coming from candidates targeting sitting MPs or, you know, from sitting MPs targeting or elements associated with sitting MPs targeting their rivals. But, you know, they, they're using fake accounts, so you really can't tell where it's from originally. But there's a whole heap of fake accounts that have sprung up during this period, uh, election period, and, it, and it's bound to increase going into the polls and then uh, onwards into the formation of government. So, yeah, it's a, it's a whole new disturbing trend that's come out. Like, uh, I was in Singapore, we were discussing this in, in, at a Google conference, and these were the, just trends that were being seen in the Indian elections, but now I'm seeing it in Papua New Guinea. You would presume that this is going to have a significant impact on the election? Yes. It may not have impact on rural voters. You know, it may have a minimal impact on rural voters, but for urban electorates, it has a huge, huge impact on, because they have access to Facebook. Voter opinion is increasingly swung by social media, and that's going to be a trend that's going to increase and become more pronounced going into the future and future elections. Aviation is the hot topic this week in the Pacific. Ministers from 18 Pacific Island states are meeting on Wednesday Cook Islands time, that's Thursday New Zealand time, to discuss the future of aviation. The regional aviation ministers' meeting will be hosted virtually by the government of the Cook Islands. The gathering comes just after Air New Zealand dropped direct flights between LA and Rarotonga. Our reporter Alicia Foon spoke with the Cook Islands Transport Secretary, John Hosking, about this and recent negotiations with airlines, including Air Tahiti Nui. So with, with Air Tahiti Nui, in addition to that, uh, Ewan Smith of Air Aratunga, he's the uh, general manager, um, also went across and he spoke uh, with Air Tahiti Nui to, to push for a, um, how do you want to say it, um, air service license between Air Aratunga and Air Tahiti Nui. How close um, is that from, from happening or being finalised? I think it's July, but I stand to be corrected if it's thereafter. And what will this mean for the Cook Islands and the Pacific in general? I think what we, we're going to be seeing is that um, with Air Tahiti Nui, they have the links to the, um, how do you say it, the west coast of the USA. In addition to that, they have direct flights to France. Um, what we're going to see is a big shift in tourism where they would, uh, possibly come via Tahiti. Um, as you may be aware, um, I, I heard there is a big um, tourism boom in Tahiti at this time, and I think they're they're a bit short on accommodation, and therefore it may open the doors for taking a lot of that um, excess into the Cook Islands, which is going to be um, one of those stepping stones. 
Absolutely. We've seen a lot of high-profile celebrities and people including, you know, the likes of Kim Kardashian in Tahiti. So have you had any particular interest or um, more markets wanting to find direct ways to come through to visit Rarotonga? Because at the moment, it's very much just via New Zealand, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Come the 1st of July, we will be uh, open to international travel. Um, we do, at this current stage, we do have Jetstar operating out of Australia, Australia via New Zealand and to the Cook Islands. In addition to that, I believe there may be some negotiations with um, other airlines to get a direct. I heard um, last week in New Zealand uh, is on hold at this time, um, so there could be an avenue for for Jetstar to do a direct, but um, I guess that would possibly come in future. And um, we haven't heard the, I haven't heard anything from Jetstar regarding a direct flight, but. You can never know when it comes to tourism. I think people are wanting to fly direct rather than fly via New Zealand. At, at this time, right now, we're, we're averaging about two to three flights a day. There's a lot of tourists here. We've also got um, flights that we, we consider chock-a-block, which means quite full. And that's quite evident with the number of people on the ground at this time. On that note... I can't help but bring up the fact that Air New Zealand dropped one of its, you know, key uh, routes from Los Angeles to Rarotonga, and I firstly wanted to get your reaction. Um, oh, I think that one's come out of a bit of a um, bit at a time when um, I think um, I, I don't think there's a big handle on COVID nineteen at this time. I think it's a um, strategic move, but my understanding with that one is. Um, they'll probably revisit it, but not now, and maybe further down the road with that flight. I asked that very question. A spokesperson from Air New Zealand said that there was no intention to to reinstate it at all. How do you take that? Oh, uh, yeah, I think that would be a big blow for the Cook Islands. Um, uh, a lot of them um, have relied heavily on the American market and uh, the northern markets for tourism, especially at this time of the year. Like, like we were saying, New Zealand is open, Australian doors are open, so there is the Pacific markets coming through New Zealand. Yeah, I think there'd be uh, quite a big blow for our uh, tourism sector. And I guess is that the reason why Air Tahitinui is being approached and, and you're having to find other deals and negotiate so that you know, you can make up for that kind of shortfall. I think any any development in the in the aviation sector is a development for the little countries. I mean, there you have Air Aratunga, a small player working with um, a big player. And I guess um, having Air Tahiti Nui as the bigger bigger partner, I think that's going to be great for tourism. And I think I take my hats off to um, Air Aratunga and um, Ewan Smith for making this happen. Do you have a message for the New Zealand government or, or Air New Zealand? Uh, no. Okay. As a realm country, do you expect more, particularly seeing that the economy in the Cook Islands relies heavily on tourism? I mean, that, that's been there every year, hasn't changed. I think with anything to with New Zealand government and uh, in New Zealand, uh, the preference would be to leave that to our government to make that decision. And uh, any statement should come from the Islands government. Concerns that the Tonga government would struggle to get its budget through before the 30th of June deadline have come to nothing with it being passed last Wednesday. 
The budget is a record setter in a number of ways, as our Tonga correspondent Kalafi Moala told Don Wiseman. A record in the sense that it's the biggest budget ever, $764.7 million for the 2022-2023 financial year. And the other thing that was historical is that it's the first time ever that uh, a budget has been passed within two weeks of deliberation in Parliament. So it was a fast one. There was concern, of course, whether there would be enough time to get it approved before the 30th of uh, June, but they got it done uh, on the 15th uh, of the month. The Tongan economy is in dire straits. It's been there for a fair while, and then with these natural disasters over the the last period and then COVID, things are looking grim financially, or have been for some time, haven't they? So where is yeah. this extra revenue going to come from? Well, uh, that's a very good question. And uh, one of the things that is very noticeable is when the budget was announced and was, of course, done by the Minister of Finance and, and the fact that it's a deficit budget of $30 million, there was this sense of confidence that whatever the deficit would be, whatever they need, it's going to come from uh, donations from overseas, from aid and money. And uh, I think this is something that they are used to, that whatever budget they're going to put out, uh, whatever the deficit is going to be, it's going to be provided for and they're looking for overseas. And the other thing that's quite significant is even before the Minister of Finance announced the budget, he said that the Tongan economy has shrunk by 29%. Uh, He expressed great concern in how the nation needs to work together to up the economy, announced also $280 million worth of damage from the eruption and the tsunamis. And yet they were quite confident uh, that the budget, even with a deficit, was going to be provided for. Tonga's always been very reliant on remittances. Where are they at? How significant a feature are they in the budget? Yeah, it's huge, of course. I mean, when you look at the last two years with the COVID uh, concern in Tonga and then, of course, with the disaster from the tsunami, it's actually the remittances in record amount and that was able to kind of keep our canoe floating in a sense, particularly uh, among people who lost jobs, who lost businesses, and yet their families from overseas sending in money during this period of time in record amount were able to allow them to keep shopping, to keep buying things. But it was not just the cash that came from overseas. Of course, there was a a record sending in of supplies from New Zealand, from Australia, from the United States. Common communities in those countries sent in 500 huge containers uh, that contained drums filled with all kinds of food items and even water. Overhanging this budget has been this issue with four MPs, one, the former Prime Minister, and three Cabinet Ministers who lost their seats but they got stays pending appeals. How close are those appeals? Do we know? Well, what happened, of course, was a decision that the appeals court, which normally for its second session meets in October, they've moved it up to July. So I understand that the first week of July would be the deliberations on those uh, state uh, cases. What are their chances of winning the appeals? 
Well, they do have chances, although, of course, the nature of an appeal is that you cannot bring in anything new from the outside. You have to to argue on the merit of what has been presented to the Supreme Court. The appeal is because they feel that the judges have erred on their decisions. So they've got to, to prove it. They've got to bring in new arguments on that rather than trying to submit new evidence. And so they do have a chance, but I think some of us who are people observing this whole situation feel it, it, it's a long chance of them winning. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Nakabaka levu, nisa mudumanda.